Okay, Daniel chapter 7. Again, in studying the end times and prophecy, the, one of the places that we, we have to go, if we're going to understand it at all, is sooner or later, and preferably sooner, you've got to get the prophecies that were given to Daniel. Uh, we saw Daniel chapter 2 last time, and Daniel 7, we'll start Daniel 7 this week, and and Daniel 7, as you're going to see, if you remember what we talked about last time, remember what was in Daniel 2, you can see 7 builds upon what was given in 2. Now, <clears throat> in the book of Daniel, you look at the first half of Daniel, about the first 6 chapters, you've got primarily historical narrative with a little bit of prophecy, namely chapter 2, the vision, um, Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the great statue. Now, on the latter six chapters, uh, what you have there is primarily all prophecy with a little bit of historical narrative. So the, the, the focus of the book flips. So my intention is to do Daniel 7 and 9, because they're the, they're the 7 and 9 with 2 are the ones that are really mandatory. Now, 11 and 12, I, I may break from Daniel, move on, and then come back, because they refer out even further. And starting uh, next week or the week after, wherever it makes the most sense, I'm going to pass out a, a, a timeline of where prophecy fits into the historical flow of biblical prophecy in terms of time. Okay, uh, we know that uh, we are in this age, the age of the church. Prior to the age of the church, you had, just for the sake of ease, the Old Testament era. Okay, uh, then you have the church, and then you're, we're going to have after that when the church ends, we're going to have the tribulation period, then the the thousand year, the millennial reign, and at the end of that, then in comes the new heaven and new earth. And so, like I say, we, what we want to put all that together when you start reading prophecies, okay? And that starts today. We start getting Israel pinpointed, the church pinpointed, because people often confuse them, stick them all together. Uh, okay, so Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Start break. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking at my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirred up, stirred up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. I'll stop right there. Now, the first year of Belshazzar, you know, where'd that guy come from? Well, if we were doing a study of Daniel, he would show up, he would have shown up in chapter five. Okay? Uh, Belshazzar was the was a son, grandson, grandnephew, they vary, of Nebuchadnezzar. And by the time uh, Belshazzar comes along, Nebuchadnezzar's been dead for a while. Okay. Uh, our first note here, the first year of Belshazzar was around 553 B.C., some nine years after the passing of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, And Belshazzar was what you would call a co-regent. He was a co-regent um, with his father. Anyway, that's again, that's the historical part. Now, the dreams and visions, there was a series of visions predicting the four major empires that would directly affect 
Israel from, from the time of Daniel to the coming of the Messiah to set up his kingdom. And that's why he said, oh, I got these series, and then now what he says, I'm going to write down the related summary of, of all the dreams and visions that the Lord gave me about these four visions. Daniel sat down and wrote a summary. We're, we're, we have that summary right here in chapter 7. So we're going to look at that summary. And again, I put this note in. We looked at this last time because this is an extremely important point to understand to save confusion. And, that is, and that's that note, the church and this present age are not seen in this prophecy. Not one bit. They're not seen at all. These visions are given as if the church never existed or never would exist. Okay? The church was a mystery to the Old Testament saints. We saw that back in Ephesians. We'll go back and we'll read that again. We went through Ephesians. We saw the church is a mystery. And, and Paul um, spoke of the church to the Ephesians as the mystery revealed. Okay? This was a mystery. And then during this age of the church, Israel is temporarily blinded and hardened. And the key word there is temporarily. Because there are those out there that I believe falsely believe that Israel was replaced by the church. And you really don't, you don't find that in scripture. It's what they call replacement theology. So if you ever hear that term, that's what it is. The church replaced Israel and it did not. Let's look at Ephesians. I think it's important enough just to go over that one more time because it is such a key point. <clears throat> Ephesians 3, 4 through 10. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the, into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Apostles and prophets here, the prophets are not referring, in this context, aren't referring to the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah. They're referring to the New Testament prophets. Okay? New Testament. It's a New Testament context in the spirit. To be specific. And what is that? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. That was unheard of back in the Old Testament. Didn't get that. They it was written that Israel was to be a light to the nations. Now, they failed at that miserably, but that was what they were supposed to do. Uh, as a matter of fact, they will succeed in that mission when the tribulation period comes, by the way. Okay, we'll see that when we get there. And fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, and we, we, that passage there is, is speaking of co-equality. There's, there's no, no one has any priority over the other. And again, and in the ultimate sense, that is going to re- be true as well. And verse 7, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the un- unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what, the, what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. It's an interesting concept there that through the church this mystery is made known to the 
rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. You know, it didn't say on rulers and authorities on earth, but the heavenlies. Okay. Remember, there's, I'm going to go there. Remember that passage? I believe it's it's in uh, in Peter. It says the uh, the angels look into this and they kind of like, wow, they learn from what's going on. They're they're learning from what's going on here. Um, and then Romans 11, we were there last time, but again, it's worth seeing again. Um, and I guarantee this won't be the last time we visit Romans 11 because it's it's so critical. <clears throat> but Romans 11, 25 through 29. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. I'm going to stop right there for a moment. Uninformed, the, old, the, the King James has ignorance there. I don't want you to be ignorant of this fact. But I'll tell you, ignorance of what is about to be said here has led some churches, put that in quotes, of the past, uh, any, anyway, to be anti-Semitic in their preaching. The false Christian churches still are to a certain degree. Okay? And that was, um, that came out in times like, oh, around World War II, for example, when many churches kept silence over the uh, persecution of the Jews by the Nazis and and others. But... um, but again, I'm going to say that again. For I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Again, that partial hardening. Uh, well, what's that partial mean? Well, that, that hardening is not for every single Jew alive because Jews are being saved all along just like Gentiles are being saved but they're being saved into the church. All right? And then verse 26, and thus all Israel, verse 26, all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Big important time. There's coming a time when all Israel will be sinless. That's what that's saying. All Israel will be sinless. Today's not that day. <laughs> okay? Today's not that day. It wasn't yesterday, last week, or two centuries ago. It's, it's out there in the future. And then verse 28. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Well, not enemies of us, but from God's perspective, they're still enemies. That is, they're deniers of the gospel. As a group. And we're talking about when it says all Israel will be, future will be saved. That's again, that's talking about Israel as a nation, as a unit. All right? Um, And so that, again, is going to happen down the road. Matter of fact, that's one of the major purposes of the tribulation period itself, is that that seven-year period will be used to call where God is going to call Israel back to himself. Israel will be purged during that time while judgment is being thrown down upon the nations. 
okay? And it's going to be a, a it's going to be an awful time to live in for anybody, believer and unbeliever, but yet even during all that chaos, there's going to be a massive revival going on, and it'll be led by the Jews. We'll get to that when we get to the tribulation, but the Jews will, be, will take the leadership of that. The church will be gone, okay? Now... Yes, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake. Let me read 28 again. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Don't lose that statement. That statement stuck on there, and it's extremely important. That's why we can say God is not done with Israel. Why? Because, verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The Abrahamic covenant is irrevocable. The Davidic covenant, irrevocable. The new covenant, Jeremiah 31, irrevocable. Those covenants will come to pass. Why? Because God said so. And they're covenants made by God with man. It's not a covenant coming from man. It's a covenant coming from God. And that's the big difference. That's the big difference. Man can make all the promises he wants, and, you, and we all know what they're worth. <laughs> and I'm trying very hard not to get political. Now, where it says the great sea, back to, <laughs> back to Daniel. I just can't help myself. But back to Daniel, where it, where in um, verse 2, where it talked about, and I saw looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The great sea refers to the mass of humanity, <clears throat> namely the nations, just the mass of humanity that's out there. Um, <clears throat> we won't turn there now, uh, but in Isaiah 7.12 and Revelation 13.1, uh, especially Revelation 13, we'll be there several times between now and the end of this study, that uh, the sea is commonly used for humanity, and then out of humanity comes something like... Uh, Revelation 13, 1, you probably read that. The beast came up out of the sea, and that's a description of Antichrist. And then another beast came up uh, out of the sea. Okay, false prophet. And then the four winds blowing around there <clears throat> gives a picture that the winds were blowing from all directions, just stirring up the sea and just in a violent torrent. Like you had just choppy waves just coming from all directions, you know. It's not just the nice little swells and you're out there and you're kind of, oh, isn't this fun, riding up and down on the swells. No, this was choppiness coming from all directions. That could swamp a boat. But see, that's the idea because it's a time of turbulence, a time of great problems. It's a picture of chaos and turmoil. Now, the four great beasts, now that represents the four successive empires or world powers, if you will, which dominate Israel until Messiah comes. This is not saying that there's only four empires that had anything to do with all with Israel. Because people say, well, how do you explain Germany in World War II, Hitler, right? This isn't talking about that. There's a context here. The, again, the context of these four great empires is those four great empires that actually held direct sway over Israel as a nation living in their land. Okay? Let's, again, not looking at this church age. With the church age, 
removed from the picture. Keep that in mind too. The church age removed from the picture as if it never existed. That's how these prophecies are given. Okay? Okay, let's move on. Um, We talk about these great monsters. It literally means they're huge, massive, monstrous. The beast shows the character of the nations being powerful and ferocious. The first one, verse 4. 7-4, 7-4, I'll just take them one at a time here. 7-4, this first was like a lion. <clears throat> it had wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a human mind also was given to it. Hmm. Interesting. A lion, wings of an eagle. Lion, the king of beasts, eagle, king of birds, and then it's interesting to note that the winged, winged lions were symbolic of the Babylonian Empire. You can look at many of the gates that you enter the city of Babylon. You had little statues at the gates of a winged lion, just kind of sitting there like it was guarding the door, you know. Uh, and the wings plucked off, I, refer, I think that refers back to the, in chapter 4, where the Nebuchadnezzar was uh, humiliated for about seven years. You guys, if you ever remember that story where... God uh, took a very proudful man and humbled him for seven years where he was actually uh, had the, I forget the name of it right now, but it's actually an extremely rare illness where an individual takes on the characteristics of a grazing animal, like a cow or a steer or something. He's out there grazing in the field. And so Nebuchadnezzar had that. And, um, but when he was lifted up, after he was, winds were plucked, but then it says he was lifted up and made to stand like a man and a human mind was given to it. Okay, after Nebuchadnezzar's um, humbling, he, uh, became, more, he would keep, became more humane after that because he was truly humbled. Maverick, let's look back at Daniel 4, 434, very quickly. It's worth it just to see Nebuchadnezzar's testimony after coming out of that. But at the end of that eight period, that period, now that was that period of uh, seven years where he was uh, grazing like, a, like a, one of the cattle. Now, this is, listen to this, and tell me if at the end of it you think he might be saved or not, okay? This is quite a testimony. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he who does according to his will is the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is to question whatever he says. But how many do question what he says? One of the most arrogant people in history came to the community and says, who is anybody to question what God has said or God has done? Okay. And verse 36, at that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was, I was reestablished in my sovereignty, 
and, sur- and, surpa- and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. That's a pretty good testimony. For, I mean, we're talking, you're looking from, a, especially from an Old Testament perspective like that. I would say he got a pretty good handle on who the one true God is. And he says so, one true God. And see, it's, because remember back then, the, you know, there was, as far as we know from history, zero nations were atheists. Zero. Most all of them, I think, Virtually all of them were polytheistic. So that's a big statement coming from a world of polytheistic religions where people, multiple gods, okay, that got, they have God for everything. I mean, you know, Greece, Rome, they all, they all did, all did. Um, India today, I think, is the same way. They're still polytheistic over there. I mean, well, in another way, Mormonism is polythe- polytheistic. We're all gods, they say. Or you can be, just a matter how big a God you're going to be, you know, anyway. <laughs> but, <clears throat> so that was a huge statement. And we remember our very first point, the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, that's 553. Uh, that's when he got this, uh, these revelations and wrote them down. And Babylon, as, an, as a nation, back then existed from 605 to 539. And we know Babylon... Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, took Israel captive. Okay? It's starting with Babylon, and it's going with the four nations that have full control over Israel. And from their perspective, it's future. Okay? Which they'll all, they'll, they'll all find out sooner or later that they have God's hand was moving them all. Was moving them all. <clears throat> okay, next one, Medo-Persia, verse 7. Daniel, Daniel 7, verse 5, excuse me. And behold, another beast, second one, resembling a bear. And um, it, was, it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much flesh. That's kind of a, you almost picture this big old burly bear up on one side and then three ribs in its mouth, you know, and... It said a bear, now we know a bear, strong and fierce, not as swift as a lion, okay, not as fast, but big and strong, big and powerful. And uh, you look back in history, and this empire moved with huge armies and overpowered their enemies. That was their, every, throughout the ages, different nations had different methods of operation in terms of uh, military advancement, right? Medo-Persia's philosophy was, just just throw a lot of soldiers and just overwhelm the people with, with people. Just, just overpower the enemy with sheer numbers. Okay? And, um, but it didn't move very fast because they were big, but because all these people, get all these people moving, you know, hey, it took time. Because you had to bring supplies to, for them to eat. So it took time. Where it says raised up on one side... That points to the dominance of the Persians compared to the Medes. It was, see, this is a coalition of the Medes and the Persians. 
I'm not going to get into the history of that because it doesn't matter for our study here. Now, the three ribs in its mouth refers to the prey of the bear, namely um, the Medo-Persian Empire. They knocked off Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia, which was a part of modern-day Turkey. So that was their empire, okay? And that Medo-Persian Empire existed from 539 to 331 B.C., You notice uh, by this time, Daniel is gone. Now, Daniel did exist into the very beginnings of that Medo-Persian Empire, but uh, he definitely wasn't there to the end, okay? And so, again, this in and of itself shows us the accuracy of prophecy, that you can just pinpoint these nations just like that. The next one, Greece, 7-6. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, with head on his back, four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. All right, that's a strange leopard. Like a leopard, he had four wings, you know, it's like a leopard with four wings, speaks of the agility and great speed. Okay, now, actually, though, you get a leopard, which is fast anyway. I mean, leopards, I mean, even today, you can clock them. They're faster than lions, way faster than bears. Now you put wings on that thing, it can really move, right? (laughs) So we're talking a super fast critter. Now, when you look through the history of this, um, the first, uh, matter of fact, chapter 8 goes into more detail on this kingdom. We're not going to do it because we don't need it for our, unless you really want to, on the scope of prophecy, getting us to the end times and stuff. But what it... It points out in chapter 8 that there was the original leader was one, and uh, that original leader was Alexander the Great. Okay, this is a man we know from, even the infidel knows him from history, right? He's in history, and he conquered most of what was considered the civilized world back then, and his conquest extended from Macedonia, where he came from, <clears throat> and North Africa, and all the way to India back then. And he flew. I mean, he moved. He was quick. Uh, After the death of Alexander, at the age of 33, the empire was divided among four of his generals, thus the four heads. Okay? And those, we have, we know them from history as well. There was uh, Cassander who controlled, but the empire was chopped into four pieces. So, you know the old adage, divide and conquer? You know, they were, they were generals should know better, but the lust for power and greed kind of makes people not do what they know to be better sometimes. You ever, you, ever, you ever notice that? And so what they did is they helped any would-be enemy by, you know, divide and conquer. Well, they self-divided. So you had uh, Cassander who, who ruled over Macedonia, the area of Macedonia and Greece, uh, you had um, Lysimachus, who did Asia Minor, Seleucus, uh, Seleucus, Syria, and parts of the Middle East. And then you had the Ptolemies, which was Egypt and Palestine. <clears throat> and this empire existed from 331 to 146 B.C. A lot went on in this empire. Because, see, this, this empire here, like you had the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, were in constant battle. And guess what they were battling over? That piece of land that was kind of in between them? 
Israel. <laughs> so you, they really held dominance over Israel because they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, grappling for power. And then the fourth beast, verse 7 and 8, and after this I kept looking in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and exceedingly strong. Now, as we read this, listen to the terminology. It gets different now. The terminology gets different. And, I mean, there's just like, it was that way in, in Daniel chapter 2, the vision of the beast. It was like they talked about it, and then they added more information and kind of made a distinction between the description of this. And they're going to do the same here. I kept looking and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, existed extremely strong and had large iron teeth and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn came up among them and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it and behold, thus the horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Hmm. Okay. That should be easy to figure out, huh? Fourth beast. The fourth beast. Dreadful and terrifying. Extremely strong. Well, right there, it's just the terminology using shows that this animal, which was really not an animal, there's this thing that's iron. Iron teeth, stomping, crushing. Remember the, uh, the statue? When you get down to that fourth empire, it had the legs of iron and feet of iron-clay mix. Okay? And then, there, that was the, that, and then that was the distinction, too, between that last empire, like the iron legs, and then the feet were iron and clay. All right? This one, too, it's going to do the same thing. Um, but the first half, and, and had large iron teeth, devoured and crushed. This is described as some kind of metal monster, not a animal. I mean, it's not a lion, not a leopard, not a bear. This is a iron tooth something. That's all. We, that's the only description we're giving it. Is iron? It had iron teeth, and it had, uh, and it devoured and crushed. And trampled down. So it had some kind of feet. It would crush, stomp, and destroy. And that was typical of the Roman Empire. Matter of fact, that's how they kept peace. You've heard of the old term Pax Romana? That's what Roman peace was. You violate the peace, you get crushed. Ah, guess what? We have peace again. (laughs) I mean... That's the way they operated. The large, uh, the large iron teeth points to the strength of the empire just to chew up and devour lesser nations. And it devoured, crushed, trampled down. And um, again, that was a characteristic of the Roman Empire. Now this empire, Rome, existed from 146 B.C. and went all the way to 476 A.D. And vestiges actually of that empire although not in the same way. You've heard about the Holy Roman Empire? That came after, when the Catholic Church started winning dominance over 
Christianity. Um, the Roman Empire, per se, was not the all-powerful beast anymore because the, the empire was kind of, it wasn't conquered, really. Pieces of it were, broke away and moved on, and other nations were formed out of it. Like the area we know as France was like Gaul. But remember, the Roman Empire went all the way out to Great Britain. And you might remember, what's that uh, between England and Scotland? Had what, Hadrian's Wall there? Hadrian was one of the Caesars, or what is he, one of the generals. Anyway, a Roman built that wall. <laughs> so, um, but there you go. I mean, so it, it had influence, and then as the years went by, um, where this is a good lesson for nations in our day to learn from history, if you're not careful, you'll just plain fizzle out. You'll just, just kind of fall apart. And you look at the history of Rome as time went on and went on, especially when the popes got involved. And then there was power struggles and all kinds of stuff, internal fightings, uh, civil wars in different parts. And next thing you know, gee, where did Rome go? <laughs> It just kind of disappeared. <laughs> now, let's just keep moving. Then you get down there in 7 where it says the ten horns. And it had ten horns. Now, this term takes us out of history and moves us into the future. The ten horns correspond to the toes in Daniel chapter 2. And remember, let's look back at Daniel chapter 2, just in case you weren't here or forgot. I know how memories can be. I've got one of those that forgets a lot, quite often. (laughs) So, 240 to 42. Again, we're in that fourth empire from the statue, right? <clears throat> and the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And um, mixed and, and sorry, so with iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another, <clears throat> excuse me, in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So, Iron and pottery, yeah, you can make them stick together, but one's not going to do the other all that much good in terms of strength. Um, especially when iron starts inside the clay starts to rust a little bit, <laughs> you got pocket. Yeah, it's just not going to work. Not not a good not a good idea. Rebar and concrete's a whole different story. Don't you know? In case you got doing that stuff, that's this is pottery, no, not not modern day concrete with. Uh, Treated rebar. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Revelation. Let's look at Revelation 17. <clears throat> Moving forward to the time we know as the tribulation period. Speaking about the nation of the beast is the context here. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they received authority as kings with the beast 
for one hour. Hmm. Sure, Beast says, you want to be king? Go for it. Just don't count on it lasting forever. All right. <clears throat> for one hour. We'll get to all those passages when we get there. But just I'm just trying to make the correlation now, the consistency of prophecy. Daniel 2, the toes, right? Ten toes on the normal two feet. You've got ten toes. You've got, um, you know, the ten, ten horns um, in, in Daniel 7. And ten kings, here, ten horns refer to ten kings here in Revelation 17. So that, that's why we know this is moving beyond. We've got scripture that, I, ah, that picks up that same scenario. And, and brings it forward. And remember, remember back in chapter 2 what uh, was revealed to Nebuchadnezzar by Daniel says, what, God, what the God has done for you, Nebuchadnezzar, he's given you a vision of what is going to happen in the latter times. Remember that statement last week? In the latter days, the latter times. So it's pointing to the end times the end times. That's where it's all going. Because, let's face it, what happens at the latter times? Jesus Christ returns. Messiah comes, sets up his kingdom, and that's the one as described in Daniel chapter 2, that the kingdom, remember the, the rock that was not shaped by hand came and smashed that statue which resembled all these empires? And what came out of that? that rock rose up and started an empire that would have no ending. It would never end. And that's where this is going. Um, in verse uh, 9 through 12 and on, we're going to see that, well, let me just jump to 13. Where now? I mean, back in Daniel 7. I'm jumping ahead because we're just about where... Just about out of time here. And we're going to come back to this thing about the little horn. The little horn, when we do, we'll do a study on the Antichrist, I, call him, I, just, I like to call him the little horn with the big mouth. <laughs> Shooting off, great, making great statements, you know, big, yeah, 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 yeah. Great statements, boastful, prideful. We'll come back to this in later studies anyway. <laughs> but looking ahead... Uh, to where we're going next week, we're going to see that verse 9 of the Ancient of Days, which is a tremendous statement of the Father. I'll just read it. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and hair of the head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out of before him. <clears throat> thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat. The books were opened. That's, uh, that's a court. The court. There's judgment going on here. A verdict is about to be rendered, is what the scene is here. Then I kept looking <clears throat> because of the sounds of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. Remember that little horn with the big mouth? Okay. <clears throat> I kept looking until the, until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given into the burning fire. Well, Revelation 
tells us that the uh, the Antichrist is picked up and thrown into the lake of fire. Scripture is so consistent with itself, you know. And why do people have trouble with it? <laughs> I mean, it's just it's there. Yeah, it takes some reading, takes some study, but it's it's there. <clears throat> And from the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for a period of time. Uh, in the context of this, it'll be a brief period of time. But this is the one I want to leave us with. I kept looking by the night vision. Behold, the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Again, Daniel 2, the end, the rock came, smashed the statue. Nation came up out of it. He was the head of that nation, that nation that never went. That's the final, and there again, that's what's going to happen and be an ending to that final form of what we know as this fourth empire. We can call it a revised Roman empire if you want. A lot of people do. That's fine. <laughs> but know that whatever they call themselves, that nation will be destroyed by Jesus Christ himself. And that destruction starts in Revelation 19, which it itself is another day, another study. But we, we have to close, close for now. That's some neat stuff coming. And again, Scripture is certain. It's certain. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for that fact that we can read your word and count on it to be true, even those places we don't fully understand. And Lord, I certainly don't understand everything I read this morning. But Lord, we just, we understand enough that we know that your word is true, and therefore, the wise man and woman will adhere to it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.